Chapter 18 of an Essay on the Principle of Population. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. An Essay on the Principle of Population by Thomas Malthus. Chapter 18. The constant pressure of distress on man from the principle of population seems to direct our hopes to the future state of trial inconsistent with our ideas of the foreknowledge of god the world probably a mighty process for awakening matter into mind theory of the formation of mind excitements from the wants of the body excitements from the operation of general laws excitements from the difficulties of life arising from the principle of population the view of human life which results from the contemplation of the constant pressure of distress on man from the difficulty of subsistence by showing the little expectation that he can reasonably entertain of perfectibility on earth seems strongly to point his hopes to the future and the temptations to which he must necessarily be exposed from the operation of those laws of nature which we have been examining would seem to represent the world in the light in which it has been frequently considered as a state of trial and school of virtue preparatory to a superior state of happiness but i hope i shall be pardoned if i attempt to give a view in some degree different of the situation of man on earth which appears to me to be more consistent with the various phenomena of nature which we observe around us and more consonant to our ideas of the power goodness and foreknowledge of the deity it cannot be considered as an unimproving exercise of the human mind to endeavour to quote, vindicate the ways of god to man end quote. if we proceed with a proper distrust of our own understandings and a just sense of our insufficiency to comprehend the reason of all we see if we hail every ray of light with gratitude and when no light appears think that the darkness is from within and not from without and bow with humble deference to the supreme wisdom of him whose quote, thoughts are above our thoughts end quote. Quote, as the heavens are high above the earth end quote. in all our feeble attempts however to quote, find out the almighty to perfection end quote, it seems absolutely necessary that we should reason from nature up to nature's god and not presume to reason from god to nature the moment we allow ourselves to ask why some things are not otherwise instead of endeavouring to account for them as they are we shall never know where to stop we shall be led into the grossest and most childish absurdities all progress in the knowledge of the ways of providence must necessarily be at an end and the study will even cease to be an improving exercise of the human mind infinite power is so vast and incomprehensible an idea that the mind of man must necessarily be bewildered in the contemplation of it with the crude and puerile conceptions which we sometimes form of this attribute of the deity we might imagine that god could call into being myriads and myriads of existences all free from pain and imperfection all eminent in goodness and wisdom all capable of the highest enjoyments and unnumbered as the points throughout infinite space but when from these vain and extravagant dreams of fancy we turn our eyes to the book of nature where alone we can read god as he is we see a constant succession of sentient beings rising apparently from so many specks of matter 
going through a long and sometimes painful process in this world, but many of them attaining, ere the termination of it, such high qualities and powers as seem to indicate their fitness for some superior state. Ought we not, then, to correct our crude and puerile ideas of infinite power from the contemplation of what we actually see existing? Can we judge of the Creator but from His creation? And, unless we wish to exalt the power of God at the expense of His goodness, ought we not to conclude that even to the great Creator, almighty as He is, a certain process may be necessary, a certain time, bracket, or at least what appears to us as time, close bracket, may be requisite, in order to form beings with those exalted qualities of mind which will fit them for His high purposes? A state of trial seems to imply a previously formed existence that does not agree with the appearance of man in infancy and indicates something like suspicion and want of foreknowledge, inconsistent with those ideas which we wish to cherish of the Supreme Being. I should be inclined, therefore, as I have hinted before, to consider the world and this life as the mighty process of God, not for the trial, but for the creation and formation of mind a process necessary to awaken inert, chaotic matter into spirit, to sublimate the dust of the earth into soul, to elicit an ethereal spark from the clod of clay, and in this view of the subject the various impressions and excitements which man receives through life may be considered as the forming hand of his creator, acting by general laws, and awakening his sluggish existence by the animating touches of the divinity into a capacity of superior enjoyment. The original sin of man is the torpor and corruption of the chaotic matter in which he may be said to be born. It could answer no good purpose to enter into the question whether mind be a distinct substance from matter, or only a finer form of it. The question is, perhaps, after all, a question merely of words. Mind is as essentially mind, whether formed from matter or any other substance. We know from experience that soul and body are most intimately united and every appearance seems to indicate that they grow from infancy together. It would be a supposition attended with very little probability to believe that a complete and full-formed spirit existed in every infant, but that it was clogged and impeded in its operations during the first twenty years of life by the weakness, or hebitude, of the organs in which it was enclosed. As we shall all be disposed to agree that God is the creator of mind as well as of body, and as they both seem to be forming and unfolding themselves at the same time, it cannot appear inconsistent either with reason or revelation if it appear to be consistent with phenomena of nature to suppose that God is constantly occupied in forming mind out of matter, and that the various impressions that man receives through life is the process for that purpose. Employment is surely worthy of the highest attributes of the deity. This view of the state of man on earth will not seem to be unattended with probability, if, judging from the little experience we have of the nature of mind, it shall appear upon investigation that the phenomena around us, and the various events of human life, seem peculiarly calculated to promote this great end, and especially if, upon this supposition, we can account, even to our own narrow understandings, for many of those roughnesses and inequalities in life which querulous man too frequently makes the subject of his complaint against the god of nature. The first great awakeners of the mind seem to be the wants of the body. Bracket, it was my intention to have entered at some length into this subject as a kind of second part of the essay. A long interruption, 
from particular business has obliged me to lay aside this intention, at least for the present. I shall now, therefore, only give a sketch of a few of the leading circumstances that appear to me to favour the general supposition that I have advanced. End bracket. They are the first stimulants that rouse the brain of infant man into sentient activity, and such seems to be the sluggishness of original matter that unless by a peculiar course of excitements other wants, equally powerful, are generated, these stimulants seem, even afterwards, to be necessary to continue that activity which they first awakened. The savage would slumber for ever under his tree unless he were roused from his torpor by the cravings of hunger or the pinchings of cold, and the exertions that he makes to avoid these evils by procuring food and building himself a covering are the exercises which form and keep in motion his faculties, which otherwise would sink into listless inactivity. From all that experience has taught us concerning the structure of the human mind, if those stimulants to exertion which arise from the wants of the body were removed from the mass of mankind, we have much more reason to think that they would be sunk to the level of brutes, from a deficiency of excitements, than that they would be raised to the rank of philosophers by the possession of leisure. In those countries where nature is the most redundant in spontaneous produce, the inhabitants will not be found the most remarkable for acuteness of intellect. Necessity has been with great truth called the mother of invention. Some of the noblest exertions of the human mind have been set in motion by the necessity of satisfying the wants of the body. Want has not unfrequently given wings to the imagination of the poet, pointed the flowing periods of the historian, and added acuteness to the researches of the philosopher. And though there are undoubtedly many minds at present so far improved by the various excitements of knowledge, or from social sympathy, that they would not relapse into listlessness if their bodily stimulants were removed, yet it can scarcely be doubted that these stimulants could not be withdrawn from the mass of mankind without producing a general and fatal torpor, destructive of all the germs of future improvement. Locke, if I recollect, says that the endeavour to avoid pain rather than the pursuit of pleasure is the great stimulus to action in life, and that in looking to any particular pleasure we shall not be roused into action in order to obtain it, till the contemplation of it has continued so long as to amount to a sensation of pain, or uneasiness under the absence of it. To avoid evil and to pursue good seems to be the great duty and business of man, and this world appears to be peculiarly calculated to afford opportunity of the most unremitted exertion of this kind, and it is by this exertion, by these stimulants, that mind is formed. If Locke's idea be just, and there is great reason to think that it is, evil seems to be necessary to create exertion, and exertion seems evidently necessary to create mind. The necessity of food for the support of life gives rise, probably, to a greater quantity of exertion than any other want, bodily or mental. The Supreme Being has ordained that the earth shall not produce good in great quantities till much preparatory labour and ingenuity has been exercised upon its surface. There is no conceivable connection to our comprehensions between the seed and the plant or tree that rises from it. The Supreme Creator might, undoubtedly, raise up plants of all kinds, for the use of his creatures, without the assistance of those little bits of matter which we call seed, or even without the assisting labour and attention of man. The processes of ploughing and clearing the ground, of collecting and sowing seeds, are not surely for the assistance of God in his creation, 
but are made previously necessary to the enjoyment of the blessings of life, in order to rouse man into action, and form his mind to reason. To furnish the most unremitted excitements of this kind, and to urge man to further the gracious designs of providence by the full cultivation of the earth, it has been ordained that population should increase much faster than food. This general law, bracket, as it has appeared in the former parts of this essay, close bracket, undoubtedly produces much partial evil, but a little reflection may, perhaps, satisfy us that it produces a great overbalance of good. Strong excitements seem necessary to create exertion, and to direct this exertion and form the reasoning faculty, it seems absolutely necessary that the supreme being should act always according to general laws. The constancy of the laws of nature, or the certainty with which we may expect the same effects from the same causes, is the foundation of the faculty of reason. If, in the ordinary course of things, the finger of God were frequently visible, or, to speak more correctly, if God were frequently to change his purpose, bracket, for the finger of God is, indeed, visible in every blade of grass that we see, close bracket, a general and fatal torpor of the human faculties would probably ensue. Even the bodily wants of mankind would cease to stimulate them to exertion, could they not reasonably expect that if their efforts were well directed, they would be crowned with success. The constancy of the laws of nature is the foundation of the industry and foresight of the husbandman, the indefatigable ingenuity of the artificer, the skilful researches of the physician and anatomist, and the watchful observation and patient investigation of the natural philosopher. To this constancy we owe all the greatest and noblest efforts of the intellect. To this constancy we owe the immortal mind of Newton. As the reasons, therefore, for the constancy of the laws of nature seem, even to our understandings, obvious and striking, if we return to the principle of population and consider man as he really is, inert, sluggish, and averse from labour, unless compelled by necessity, bracket, and it is surely the height of folly to talk of man according to our crude fancies of what he might be, close bracket, we may pronounce with certainty that the world would not have been peopled but for the superiority of the power of population to the means of subsistence. Strong and constantly operative as the stimulus is on man to urge him to the cultivation of the earth, if we still see that cultivation proceeds very slowly, we may fairly conclude that a less stimulus would have been insufficient. Even under the operation of this constant excitement, savages will inhabit countries of the greatest natural fertility for a long period before they betake themselves to pasturage or agriculture. Had population and food increased in the same ratio, it is probable that man might never have emerged from the savage state. But supposing the earth once well peopled, an Alexander, a Julius Caesar, a Tamburlaine, or a bloody revolution might irrevocably thin the human race, and defeat the great designs of the Creator. The ravages of a contagious disorder would be felt for ages, and an earthquake might unpeople a region forever principle according to which population increases prevents the vices of mankind or the accidents of nature the partial evils arising from the general laws from obstructing the high purposes of the creation it keeps the inhabitants of the earth always fully up to the level of the means of subsistence and is constantly acting upon man as a powerful stimulus urging him to the further cultivation of the earth and to enable it consequently to support a more extended population but it is impossible that this law can operate and produce the effects apparently intended by the supreme being without occasioning partial evil 
unless the principle of population were to be altered according to the circumstances of each separate country, bracket, which would not only be contrary to our universal experience, with regard to the laws of nature, but would contradict even our own reason, which sees the absolute necessity of general laws for the formation of intellect, close bracket, it is evident that the same principle which, seconded by industry, will people a fertile region in a few years, must produce distress in countries that have been long inhabited. It seems, however, every way probable, that even the acknowledged difficulties occasioned by the law of population tend rather to promote than impede the general purpose of providence. They excite universal exertion, and contribute to that infinite variety of situations, and consequently of impressions, which seems upon the whole favourable to the growth of mind. It is probable that too great or too little excitement, extreme poverty, or too great riches, may be alike unfavourable in this respect. The middle regions of society seem to be best suited to intellectual improvement, but it is contrary to the analogy of all nature to expect that the whole of society can be a middle region. The temperate zones of the earth seem to be the most favourable to the mental and corporal energies of man, but all cannot be temperate zones. A world, warmed and enlightened but by one sun, must from the laws of matter have some parts chilled by perpetual frosts, and others scorched by perpetual heats. Every piece of matter lying on a surface must have an upper and an underside. All the particles cannot be in the middle. The most valuable parts of an oak, to a timber merchant, are not either the roots or the branches, but these are absolutely necessary to the existence of the middle part, or stem, which is the object in request. The timber merchant could not possibly expect to make an oak grow without roots or branches but if he could find out a mode of cultivation which would cause more of the subsistence to go to stem and less to root and branch he would be right to exert himself in bringing such a system into general use in the same manner though we cannot possibly expect to exclude riches and poverty from society yet if we could find out a mode of government by which the numbers in the extreme regions would be lessened and the numbers in the middle regions increased it would be undoubtedly our duty to adopt it it is not however improbable that as in the oak the roots and branches could not be diminished very greatly without weakening the vigorous circulation of the sap in the stem so in society the extreme parts could not be diminished beyond a certain degree without lessening that animated exertion through the middle parts which is the very cause that they are the most favourable to the growth of the intellect if no man could hope to rise or fear to fall in society if industry did not bring with it reward and idleness its punishment the middle parts would not certainly be what they are now in reasoning upon this subject it is evident that we ought to consider chiefly the mass of mankind and not individual instances there are undoubtedly many minds and there ought to be many, according to the chances out of so great a mass, that, having been vivified early by a peculiar course of excitements, would not need the constant action of narrow motives to continue them in activity. But, if we were to review the various useful discoveries, the valuable writings, and other laudable exertions of mankind, I believe we should find that more were to be attributed to the narrow motives that operate upon the many, than to the apparently more enlarged motives that operate upon the few leisure is without doubt highly valuable to man but taking man as he is the probability seems to be that in the greater number of instances it will produce evil rather than good it has been not infrequently remarked that talents are more common among younger brothers than among elder brothers but it can scarcely be imagined that younger brothers are upon average born with a greater original susceptibility of parts 
The difference, if there really is any observable difference, can only arise from their different situations. Exertion and activity are in general absolutely necessary in one case, and are only optional in the other. That the difficulties of life contribute to general talents, every day's experience must convince us. The exertions that men find it necessary to make, in order to support themselves or families, frequently awaken faculties that might otherwise have lain forever dormant, and it has been commonly remarked that new and extraordinary situations generally create minds adequate to grapple with the difficulties in which they are involved. End of chapter 18 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards